This is Mornings with Simi. I've been hearing all these stories about the latest developments on the war in Ukraine. It's been 100 days now since the invasion of Russia, and there are more and more consequences to that, particularly for many Ukrainian children. So we wanted to find out what has been going on. Joining us now is Jeff Semple, senior correspondent with Global National News. He has been in Ukraine for the last month. Jeff, thank you for being here. Hey, good morning, Simi. Great to be with you. What has the last month been like for you? What have you seen? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, it's been quite a month. Uh, we've seen uh, a lot and we've done a lot of traveling. I mean, Ukraine, a big country, of course, second biggest country in Europe. And so we have driven from the west to the east, uh, stopping through the Donbass, which, of course, has been one of the hardest hit areas in Ukraine. It is The Donbass is Russia's stated target now, of course, the eastern industrial heartland of the country. We've been up in Kharkiv, the second largest city and we have just seen so much heart-wrenching devastation. Um, you know, families, lives blown apart, uh, houses in rubble. Uh, and we've also seen, you know, it's, it's become a familiar refrain now, but just in, the incredible defiance of the Ukrainian people, uh, including a lot of Russian-speaking Ukrainians who, you know, before this war had close ties to Russia, you know, close family members living in Russia. Um, some of them even said that, that, you know, they actually, you know, previously liked the idea of joining Russia, uh, but not anymore. It's, uh, you know, they, they have seen the horrors of this war over the last 100 days or so. And uh, some of them, ordinary civilians, are taking up arms for the first time and fighting back. One of the stories that I know you've um, talked about as well has to do with this 15-year-old who was using drones to fight back for his community. What is that about? Yeah, so that's a story we're just publishing this morning on globalnews.ca and we'll have tonight on Global National. And it's this incredible story of this 15-year-old who uh, got a drone last summer. He saved up his money in the middle of the pandemic and bought himself a drone and he would play with it every single day, practicing in his, at his backyard. Um, and then, you know, the Russians invaded. He lives just outside of Kiev. And so he was right on Russia's warpath, this small town just outside the Ukrainian capital. And the Russian forces were only a couple kilometers outside of his home. And the territorial defense force, so these basically these civilian soldiers in his town, uh, knew the Russians were coming, but they didn't know exactly where they were. So they put the call out uh, for any drone pilots uh, any civilian drone pilots. There weren't any. This kid was the only one, apparently, in the town with a working drone, and he agreed to help them. So he went out with the, in a field with his dad in the middle of the night, put up his drone over the highway. He spotted a, a Russian armored convoy coming their way, just about a couple kilometers away. He spotted one of the vehicles, he said, because they put their headlights on, and then suddenly he was able to see them. So he told his dad. His dad told the Ukrainian military, gave the coordinates, the photos, and the Ukrainian military then took out that Russian armored convoy before it managed to reach his town. So they are heralding this kid as a national hero, basically, for saving his town. And it's one of many examples where drones have really helped to check, turn the tide of this war in the favor of the Ukrainians. They put out a call for ordinary civilians, and more than a thousand of them have stepped up. These are just, you know, commer- these are consumer level drones, the types of things that, you know, our 
kids and families in Canada would play with. Um, they're putting them up in the sky and they are helping to identify, locate Russian forces, relaying that information to the Ukrainians. And, uh, and, and it, particularly in and around the capital, Kiev, these drones, these consumer-level drones were credited with making a huge difference. Unreal, though. I guess it gives you an idea, though, just how much society has changed with this last 100 days. Also, Jeff, what can you tell us about the situation with Ukrainian children being sent to Russia? This is something that President Zelensky had talked about. It seems shocking, but what do we know about that? Yeah, I mean, at this point, uh, we haven't been able to independently corroborate a lot of these claims. But as you alluded to, the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said last week that uh, Russia had forcibly taken 200,000 Ukrainian children out of Ukraine in, into Russia, the intention there, not, with the intention of not letting them return to Ukraine. Uh, we've heard, uh, you know, similar claims with a, with a much different spin, of course, from Russian state media, uh, which reported recently that about one and a half million people from Ukraine have actually come to Russia since the war began. Uh, we have heard stories. I've spoken to Ukrainians who actually, you know, who had close ties to Russia, who fled to Russia just themselves. Of course, they wanted to get out of the country for many of them. Russia was the closest alternative. Um, so there are a lot of Russia, Ukrainian refugees now living in Russia. Um, but, you know, of course, the children number there is just heart wrenching to think that, you know, 200,000 children might have been forcibly taken from their home. And of course, you know, we, you know, the death toll here is estimated into the tens of thousands. Um, so there are a lot of orphans now in Ukraine, and it's uh, especially in and around Mariupol and some of the hardest hit areas. We have heard reports of children being put on buses and taken out of the country. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so what do we know right now about how much Russia has progressed into Ukraine? Like what areas, if any, are they holding right now? Yeah, so they're holding, um, well, according to uh, President Zelensky, Russia controls about 20% of Ukraine's territory right now. Most of that is in the east, and it's worth remembering that uh, these Russian-backed separatists have actually controlled about a third of the Donbass in the east uh, since 2014. Uh, but so Russia has been building on those gains, capturing more communities in the east and, and in the south. Um, but, you know, at this point, the war really is sort of grinding down. It's become largely an artillery ward uh, at this point, especially in the east. And, you know, Russia's inching, you know, ever so ever closer to taking the province of Luhansk and the Donbass. Uh, if they did succeed, then they would try and take the province of Donetsk. Presumably, and those two provinces together would give Russia the Donbass. And again, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the Donbass is the stated goal of Russia in this conflict. That's what they said. They want to capture the Russian-speaking communities there. Um, so they are making progress there, but it is slow progress. And the death tolls have really spiraled in the last few weeks where we're talking, you know, hundreds of soldiers on both sides dying every single day in the Donbass. And we were there recently, and it is, I mean, honestly, some of the people in those communities in Russia's war path, it sort of feels like talking to people who've, you know, been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Uh, they really do believe that their days are numbered. They're just not sure how many they have left. Oh, man, that is awful. Is there any hope right now for uh, getting help to Ukraine? I know the UK made an announcement about that this morning. Are they still being supplied? Is help arriving? Yeah, I mean, they're they're really ramping up those calls for more weapons, more long-range weapons, better artillery. Um, and so the, the help is, is, is coming. And we've heard, you know, another recent announcement to that in that regard from the United States as well. But it's just the question is, is it, is it coming fast enough? 
Uh, and I think, you know, we have seen so many Ukrainian military victories over the last three or so months with Western weapons that have made a huge difference. And I think, uh, you know, we've seen even from Canada, the, the, the M777 howitzers, which are artillery with, with better accuracy, longer range. Uh, and that is really what we're talking about at this point is in terms of being a potential game changer is just the ability to have, um, you know, better artillery and what is really an artillery war, both sides just blasting at each other. Uh, and, and then as they inch, you know, Russians sort of moving, inching closer, they start to move in their tanks and infantry after that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a desperate situation here and, uh, the, the Ukrainian people have basically said over and over again to us over the month that we've been here that, um, you know, they, they, what they really just need is, is weapons and, um, and tactical gear as well. It was a big point that came up that they need, you know, we're used yeah. to sending humanitarian aid after a disaster or something, but they need body armor, you know, they need thermal imaging cameras and that sort of thing too. All right. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for the update. Thanks, Jimmy. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with our Raji Hall this morning. Good morning, Raji. Hello, Simi. There's a story I want to tell you about that is my kind of story because it's about some drama and architecture. So there's this stunning heritage home in West Van. It's an oldie. It was built in 1968 and it's very clearly in the style of MCM or mid-century modern. So it's got this sloping angular roof and like vaulted ceilings, amazing angles all around Anyone can appreciate it. And if you're an architecture buff, you'll surely appreciate it. But people often will drive around there and to not seem too much like a looky-loo, they will park afar and then pretend to be like they're casually walking by in order to get a really good look. Um, I'm so one of those people. Well, uh, it was designed under the supervision of a famous architect, Arthur Erickson. And to be clear, this is a heritage home. So originally and currently, it's called the Catton House. And it just went on the market recently. Uh, For not too long, it's sold for a whopping $4.3 million. We're not talking about a huge house, but it was just, uh, it's a special piece of architecture. So there's two things to note about this. Uh, The price was was high enough that people who care about protecting and preserving heritage homes, uh, they can rest assured because given that someone bought it for $4.3 million, they're not likely to demolish it. They're they're someone who's going to appreciate it and take care of it um, because that has been an issue of late with some uh, heritage homes on the North Shore that have been uh, demolished. And in this case, some people, what they're annoyed about is the marketing campaign that surrounded this heritage home. So the marketing campaign was not so much about this was how this is a heritage home that should right. be protected. Instead, uh, it was remarketed as being called the Starship House. Now, it was never called the Starship House originally. That's not what the architects called it. They called it the Catton House. But the Starship House is like, I mean, that's very dramatic, right? And flashy. Oh, it sounds cool. Uh, Yes, it does. But the problem is that no one's ever called it that. It's a heritage home and it's misleading, people are saying, to give a design structure like that, this brand new flashy, sexy name just for marketing purposes. All right. Well, allow me to play devil's advocate then, Raj. Here we go. (laughs) So, but what is the problem here is if the marketing resulted in this, what was an important, you know, heritage home being saved. 
quite possibly because the marketing was a, a key part of why exactly. they were able to put that price tag so absolutely high. And like all these fancy international design magazines covered it. Dwell did. Architecture Digest uh, called it the Starship House as well. So that that marketing campaign absolutely took off. And yes, you're probably right that it resulted in uh, the house being saved as a heritage home that's so important for design enthusiasts in BC. But on the other hand, uh, maybe it would have gone for who knows, half as much, three quarters of as much if it went just by its regular known usual name, the Catton House. I think that uh, names are so important and we've come to learn that uh, more and more in the last few years, last several years. And we should use the proper names given to things. And I, I think that sometimes, especially in the real estate market, uh, we get these uh, misleading marketing campaigns. Like how many times has someone called something charming when that what they meant was <laughs> a high dump? That's why you need to go and see the place, right? Before you make a decision on buying it. I find that with pictures, yeah, the pictures are all there, but what they don't show is just as important as what they actually show. Like you have to go there, you have to take a look yeah. at it. Right, You definitely have to take a look at it because some of these words that should be like appealing and attracting you to a space are the ones that are red flags. Always be, always be worried when somebody's trying a little too hard to sell you something. Uh, Raji, thank you. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. First they were supposed to play Iran and then that went sideways and then they were rescheduled to play Panama. But the Canada men's soccer game did not happen either because the team itself said they weren't going to play. And this all comes down to a dispute with soccer's governing body, Canada Soccer. What is going on here? How could this impact Canada playing in the World Cup? Joining us now to break it all down is Bruce Arthur, who's a columnist for the Toronto Star newspaper and contributor at TSN. Bruce, thanks so much for being here. Good morning. What went wrong here? What is going on? This is not a short story. It's a long story. Uh, Canada Soccer has long been a not a competent organization. And all of a sudden, they've got a men's team that is capable of reaching the World Cup. First time since 1986, a lot of young talent, and here they are. This is one of two preparatory uh, windows for the World Cup, and only two between now and November. The second one will be a short European leg in September. Um but what had happened is they hadn't negotiated with the players how much of the World Cup prize money they were going to give them. Canada gets about $10 million Canadian just for being in the World Cup, and the players are going to get some of that. In the United States, for example, the men's and women's players get 90% of all World Cup prize money uh, from USA Soccer. It's a little bit different because they have different sponsorship and broadcasting deals and they can afford to do that and what happened here apparently is uh they started negotiations back in march but it it somehow got delayed to the point where a a deal that canada soccer said was for 30 percent for each the men and the women for the world cup in terms of the prize money was forwarded on thursday the players were already in town and they decided that they were going to withdraw from training on Friday. They refused to practice. Did the same on Saturday after face-to-face -face meetings with the, uh, the executive, which had flown in. And then the Sunday, this really is the incredible part, Canada Soccer didn't get to a point where they could get the players on the field. 
they whether it was a lack of trust, whether it was a lack of an offer, but this is the most significant of the games that they're going to play in this spring window. Um, and every day matters. That's what Coach John Herbman had said. And as a result, we have a stalemate in which Canada's men's soccer team, Canada's soccer can't get them on the field. That is crazy when you describe it like that. But also, it also <laughs> seems kind of crazy to me that these players who put their heart and soul, their guts out there to earn that money to get to the World Cup was only going to get 30% of it? Well, and so here's the thing. That may be comparable to other nations. Because, again, the United States is fairly exceptional in this way. But it's, it's unclear exactly what other nations get. The problem you get here is there are disputes over what exactly has been offered. Rick Westhead of TSN reported that the players have been offered 10%, and I have heard that number. Oh, my now, goodness. that would be incredibly low. Now, why would Canada soccer have so little money? And this is where it gets a little bit interesting. In 2018, back when this team was ranked 116th, then-president, uh, of uh, Canada Soccer, Victor Montagbiani, signed a deal with a, a, a company called Canadian Soccer Business. And it signed away the sponsorship rights and the broadcasting rights for anything over an annual payment of $3 million. And that means that as new sponsors are coming on to Canada Soccer, and they've got a couple that they're going to announce pretty soon, they announced Gatorade last week, that money is not available to Canada Soccer to pay the players. They are, they are tighter financially than they should be because the money goes to Canada Soccer Business, which is connected to the Canadian Premier League, and, and, and all that money is going somewhere else. What? So this is a small organization, and that's apparently what they're t- telling the players is they don't have the money to pay them. That seems, okay, absolutely ridiculous then. So could this <laughs> escalate then, Bruce? Could, could, are we talking about Canada perhaps like losing this opportunity that we have to go to the World Cup? No, they will go to the World Cup. But what you're seeing is that there's a ton of money already flying out the door. The Iran match reportedly cost Canada soccer $400,000. They had to pay Panama to get here. They had to rent BC Place. They have players in the hotel right now. They're supposed to play Curacao on Thursday for a CONCACAF Nations Cup game. And the players in an open letter yesterday said, we're going to need changes in order to play that game. I'm not sure what Canada soccer can do in terms of negotiation here. They don't have a ton of cards to play. I think they're just going to have to pay the players more. But even then... There's been a fair amount of animosity here. And as of last night, there were no face-to-face meetings scheduled. So today is supposed to be on-field training. Doesn't seem likely that's going to happen. And again, every day that they lose, from the beginning of this session to the end of the European session, Canada got 16 90-minute training uh, sessions on the field. They have lost two of them. They They had three games in this window. They've lost one. So... This is an incredible culmination of years of incompetence and whatever else from Canada soccer. And as a result, there were fans milling around outside BC yeah. yesterday, um, disappointed that they didn't get a scene today. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure today, too. Listen, Bruce, thank you so much for joining us and explaining it to us this morning. My pleasure. Appreciate that time. That's Bruce Arthur, columnist for the Toronto Star newspaper. You can read his work there, and you should, and contributor at TSN, talking about this mess with Canada Soccer and the Canadian men's national team. And now the pressure is on. This is Mornings with Simi. We were talking earlier this morning with Jeff Semple, whose reports you can see on Global National tonight, about 100 days of war in Ukraine and what that has done. And it's had a devastating impact, even though people from all over the world have been going there to pitch in and try to help the Ukrainian people. Lots of those people 
are from here, actually. And our contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us now for more on that. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, I talked to a doctor, a Vancouver physician who's actually just gotten back from Ukraine. He grew up in Poland. He moved to the States where he was trained as a doctor and he lives in Vancouver now. He works with uh, Médecins Sans Frontières or Doctors Without Borders. And really interestingly, Dr. Peter Michalkowski, he actually went to Ukraine not to offer an extra pair of hands as a doctor necessarily, but to actually train the doctors that they already have there. He said there are many doctors, they have enough doctors in Ukraine who have uh, stayed to help out, but that no one teaches ordinary civilian medical facilities how to treat the wounded in war, and that that is a very different circumstance than, than regular medicine. And so he's also training people there on how to deal with multiple people injured at the same time. So you get that, of course, in war. So MSF is is trying to teach doctors in Ukraine how to work basically on the front lines for the first time, how to take care of those who need the help the most. No, no one teaches. You know, I I wasn't taught in either Polish or, uh, or American institutions how to treat the war wounded. Uh, that's not part of the normal education. Um, in the United States, you can say that even civilian hospitals know how to deal with the gunshot wounds just because of the propensity uh, for Americans to have and use uh, guns um, in, the, in the daily life, sadly. Uh, but anywhere else, uh, this is not part of curriculum, uh, and especially things like mass casualty is not part of a normal teaching in a normal civilian uh, institution. Yeah, Simi, it's really interesting because I had never thought about that. I just assumed that Doctors Without Borders sends doctors to, you know, war-torn places and just has has them jump in and start doing their work. But, um, of course, what he's doing is so important, teaching local doctors how to deal with uh, people wounded in war, especially when it's a lot of people. And and Dr. Mikhail Khowski has been on uh, seven other big missions. He said when the call came to go to Ukraine, he was ready. He said he felt personally deeply bothered by this war. Basically, attempts of one country to subdue another country. Uh, I happened to, I happened to be growing up behind the Iron Curtain, so and I'm a fluent Russian speaker, uh, so it was very easy for me to break the ice and 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 become friendly uh, with the teams in Ukraine and. Uh, I, I knew that uh, once I get involved, I will be of value to, to NSF. Um, I really wanted to get involved. Um, this is such a blatant um, in, injustice uh, um, that, uh, that is happening uh, at, at, the, um, at the next door uh, neighbor uh, to Poland, where I grew up, uh, that uh, it really st- struck a nerve and I really wanted to help. You know, Raji, it just these stories of people who hear what's going on over there and then feel compelled to just go over there and pitch in. They're really they're so moving. Yeah, they are moving. And now this doctor, he's based in Vancouver now. He's just spent a solid month in Ukraine, has just gotten back and here and is thinking of already going back again.
Um, of course, it's traumatic, I think, for people to go to Ukraine right now, to be there, to see all the devastation firsthand. And so some people who are able to to, to help and then go away and, and take a breather and then go back, I think that's, that's so important too. And we see so many people in British Columbia trying to help out in whatever way they can. I can't believe that we're looking at 100 days of war in Ukraine already when it happened when it first happened it started i thought this has to end really soon i don't think it can last very long and yet here we are i'm sure that's what you know they think in ukraine as well when you consider how the world mobilized in those first couple of weeks and the kind of the outrage and the outpouring of support I, I and and now what i get concerned about sometimes is that people are going to forget all about it that it's still going on over there I don't. I don't worry about that. I think people have shown so much support for Ukraine. I think the stories continue to to flood our media and our news. So we're still seeing those stories. What my concern is, is that the not that people are going to forget so much as people uh, will just be kind of subdued by this devastation that we've allowed it to go on for so long and, and worried about uh, what we can do to change anything. I'm worried more about this sense of helplessness that people in the communities uh, feel. So true. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal there. There is a lot for us to talk about as well, but I want to remind you there's some great reporting going on here uh, from Global National on this topic too. You can watch their newscast tonight. Jeff Semple has been in Ukraine for the past month and he's got some very compelling stories, including one about a 15-year-old boy that you don't want to miss. That is coming up tonight. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as part of our Keep It Local series, we want to introduce you to another great farm that you should be visiting, that you should be buying from, that, you know, you want to hear their story and you want to know why. Well, joining us now is Stacey Langford, owner of Coglin Cottage Farm and Mercantile. Stacey, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me, what do you have at the farm? We specialize in rare breed pork here, um, Icelandic lamb, beef, and endangered species of vegetables. Everything that we do here is pasture-raised, free-range. Um, yeah, and ethical as possible. How did you get started doing this? By accident. <laughs> of course, right? <laughs> uh, start, uh, well, I married a farm boy and then started with um, blueberry plants in the front yard in our East Van uh, home. And one thing led to another. And next thing I know, here we are on five acres just outside of Fort Langley. Now, I subscribe to your newsletter that I get. And I'm always amazed, Stacey, at the amount of effort and work that you put into even just that newsletter. I mean, how busy are you? (laughs) Well, I'm a full-time mom. I've got two kids, eight and 11. So they take up a lot of of my day, but I have a very hardworking husband and... um, yeah, it's it's never a dull moment, but you know, my husband and I always joke that we will have lived two lives by the time we're no done. Kidding. You and will. it's good it's joyful work. Yeah. So tell me about what goes into it. So every week you offer a number of different products and it's not like you're just gonna keep going until everybody gets what they want. You have, you you're limited, right? In in what you're selling. Absolutely. So so a big part of what we do here is, is accepting our limits as human beings and how much we can produce and how much we want to work, you know, prioritizing our family. Um, and it's a small piece of land that we have. So there's only so much that our land can produce. And so for us, what we encourage folks to do is, is to accept those limitations and find the joy in that and, you know, learn to look forward to heirloom tomatoes in the summertime and, 
you know, when we sell our bacon, it sells like sell it like um, concert tickets, and it sells out in less than an hour, and yeah. and that you know makes it kind of exciting and fun. And but yeah, that's it's an important part that's missing from our food system is is recognizing and not just um, accepting, but celebrating um, the limits and and how that can actually make our lives more joyful. And Stacey, do you think that's what people are looking for now? Is they they want more connection with their food? I think so, especially, well, I mean, especially here in our region, you know, we've gone through the pandemic, which, you know, all of a sudden people realize no matter how much money you have, if there's no eggs in the grocery store, you can't get eggs. Um, And then recently with the flooding, right, like that really impacted our ability, even our ability to access our um, crucial infrastructure as farmers. And people are realizing that, you know, A, we need to have shorter supply chains um, in order to have security, but that also there's a whole bunch else. For me, the, the meat and eggs is secondary. It's community that we're nourishing here. Okay, and I understand you're also a certified organic master gardener. Is that right? That's correct. Yep, since that, 2008. Quite yeah. the title. How do you get that? Um, we, we attended a, a quite an extensive program through uh, Gaia College in Vancouver back when we were still gardening in the city. Um, it's a hands-on, quite intense academic course as well as um, working out in the field. And yeah, and so now I use that, that skills. Part of it is, you know, to pass it forward as you're as you become a master organic gardener. So I now I teach people who kill all the things how to grow their own food organically. Okay, so what tips do you have then? Because like I really expanded my <laughs> garden and I wanted to come out to your seedling sale that you had a couple of weeks ago, but I just couldn't make it that weekend. Uh, what tips do you have for people? The number one tip that I have is first of all, like don't stress. You can eat your mistakes. Things are going to die. Just, you know, roll with it and, and anticipate that. And then the main, the main thing, the best piece of advice I can give, especially to beginning gardeners, is shake hands with your garden daily. The biggest part of gardening is just going out and just paying attention. And that's something that we don't do very much um, in our society is slow down and just watch. Um, and, you know, I teach my students that basically your garden is going to teach you everything that you know, as long as you're just present and aware and just spend time out there. That's how you'll get better. Okay. So I'm not crazy for going out there and talking to my garden? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> really? Because people in my family have told me otherwise. So <laughs> <laughs> I think to my plants, I, you know, hey, I, all that's all good. <laughs> I feel much better hearing that. Uh, so tell me about the meat products that you do there. Like you talked about your bacon that sells out like um, concert tickets or something. Yes. So how yes. did you learn how to do all that? Where did those skills come from? Um, lots of trial and error, lots of tears. <laughs> um, but no, we've been really, we've been really lucky that we have, um, we've tapped into an incredible community of small farmers. Um, the meat in particular that we do, we raise endangered species here. We do a lot of, um, uh, breed conservation and we've been lucky to have a mentor in another local farmer who's you know will come out and teach us hands-on and you know again just being willing to to trust that the animals um you know they have a wisdom of their own and that by paying attention and watching them that we can learn a lot from them as well yeah. right because people want quality too right it's not enough to just say 100 percent. and so yeah, how do you no. how do you do that how do you treat your animals um, so, so I'm a former vegetarian, um, <laughs> during big farmer. Um, so our animals are outside full time. Um, the moms are with the babies. We never separate them. Um, they have an opportunity to express, um, our, one of our favorite farmers, Joel Salatin, would say that the pig has to, has to have an opportunity to express its pigness. 
So they have the chance to go outside, to root, to lay in the sunshine, to mud bath, to get belly rubs from our kids. Um, All of that makes a difference. Um, And then the flavor for our our pork is quite different because what you'll get in the grocery store is only one of two breeds of pigs. So ours are actually, um, we have some critically endangered animals here. They're much fattier, (laughs) so therefore much more flavorful. The meat's darker. We take them older. um, And, you know, I believe personally because they're happier that that also contributes to better flavors. Interesting. And I know you teach some courses, too, about canning Mm -hmm. and preserving. Is this also getting more popular? Yes. Well, one thing I'm finding even, um, you know, even at the, with the soccer moms uh, out, out on the soccer pitch is that everybody's really worried about the rising cost of food. Um, and so for myself, a big part of what we do here is building resilience in our community. Um, so even if you have a balcony, lots of my students only have a balcony, or even if you can't grow your own food, if you can learn how to put food by, um, whether that's going to the farmer's market or coming out to a farm like ours, buying in bulk, buying when things are abundant and in season, they're going to be less expensive. Um, And then you don't have to worry so much what the prices in the grocery store are doing. So So Stacey, what's it been like for you and your farm then over the past year with all the challenges that so many farmers have been facing? It's been terrifying, to be honest, Um, you know, between the natural disasters that we've experienced and our price of feed has increased, you know, exponentially. Um, so, you know, we're, it's a very fragile system, even though we have a lot of uh, community resilience. There's definitely been days, I mean, when the flood happened, we didn't know if we were going to be able to get food for our animals. So, and we have a lot more um, resilience built in, in terms of we do a lot of food rescue. So we take food that is rejected by grocery stores and bring it in for our animals to, to try to reduce the waste in the food system. But even with that, um, it's definitely, it's been a frightening time. And we're very grateful for all of our regulars who've been with us, some of us. For the full 10 years we've been here, who continue to come out week after week and support us, we really appreciate them. Well, you're going to have to expand a little bit. You might be getting a few more regulars with all no, of this. We, we, we are. We're building a store, so I'll be off the porch of my farmhouse, hopefully by the end of the summer, and, and uh, working to bring in uh, goodies from other uh, lovely local food producers, so you'll be able to do a one-stop shop. Okay, now you're talking. You're going to have to come back on and tell <laughs> us all about that when it opens. But Stacy, before we let you go, tell everybody about your website. So we, we are, uh, it's Coglin Cottage Farm. Coglin, Henry Coglin's are uh, the founder of the farm, 1892. Uh, so it's C-O-G-H-L-A-N, cottagefarm.com, and you can reach me through there. Um, it's just me here, so if you email, you're going to get me. Um, yeah, and you can sign up for the courses there, and um, I, I also offer um, uh, pay-as-you-can pricing. So if there's anybody out there who wants to learn to can or preserve, but times are tough, just send me a note. We have a no-questions-asked policy. Okay, I love it. Well, I look forward to coming out there and meeting you in person and checking awesome. out the farm. Stacy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Timmy. Take care. You too. That's Stacy Langford, owner of Coglin Cottage Farm in Mercantile. Check them out online. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we certainly haven't had a very sunny spring. If we were waiting for that to bring out the Mayflowers, it's just been rain, rain, and more rain. And while it's an inconvenience in some areas, it's a much more serious situation in others here in this province where because of the still high snowpack, the the melt is causing some serious flooding concerns. So we thought, let's get an update on what is happening out there. Jonathan Boyd joins us now, a hydrologist at the River Forecast Centre. Jonathan, thanks for being here. Oh, good morning, Simi. Thanks for inviting me on. What has the snowmelt been like right now for the province? I mean, I understand there's still a pretty high snowpack in some areas. 
Yeah, you pretty well teed it up there with just this cold spring. And in particular, uh, both April and May, we're averaging about uh, maybe one to, to four degrees below normal throughout uh, a higher province. So both months. And, and what that has done is pretty well delayed the snow melt uh, anywhere from about two to four weeks, just depending upon the, uh, the elevation and location. Okay, so what's happening right now, though? Is that snowpack starting to melt? Well, so last week was the first time we actually had any type of seasonable warmth, and it, it wasn't really that warm. However, areas in the northern part of the province, uh, it certainly was m- much warmer than normal for this time of year. So we did see a little bit more rapid melt in, in those regions, and then additional uh, additional component of, of rainfall first on the, uh, the Friday Saturday morning period, and then uh, in particular last night uh, in the Skeena Bulkley region. So that's up near uh, Smithers and Terrace. Right, I understand that's an area that there is quite a bit of concern about right now. Yeah, we're under a, a flood watch right now, not expecting to get into any type of all-time record high flows, but uh, still high enough that there are some local impacts for residents on the river, uh, an area near Terrace. Uh, Reno is, is having some some issues with some, some landowners right on the river. So the risk kind of moving forward now is with the river being so high, any additional impact from rain can uh, can cause flows to go uh, quite higher and and significantly higher uh, quite quickly if that does happen of course right of course so you're closely watching the weather this week so what is in the forecast for that area at, at this point that area doesn't have uh, large amounts of precipitation forecast what's interesting is that uh, there may be even um, what could be considered an atmospheric river barreling down on the south coast, uh, which is highly unusual for this time of year. For uh, Vancouver Island and the south coast, we typically experience atmospheric rivers in the late September through early February period. Uh, So highly unusual. It's still um, maybe about three, four days away, but the the potential is for some pretty uh, high rain again later this week for the south coast. Now, Jonathan, people get very nervous now when you start talking about atmospheric rivers because that's what we had last fall, right, that caused all the problems. Yeah, and and I'd say an unfortunate aspect of that event is that people are now associating the term atmospheric river with the one event. And atmospheric rivers happen quite regularly in the fall, and that was maybe about the the 13th or 14th one that affected the province uh, there on November 13th to 15th. Uh, so it was honestly the, the cumulative impacts of all of the atmospheric rivers that had, had arrived earlier and then the potency and strength of that, uh, that final one. What did happen on that final one, of course, was that it wasn't just the rain that was impactful, but the areas in the cold water and the Tulamine uh, where they had uh, snowpack, and, and not necessarily a huge snowpack, but enough snowpack that it, it was able to melt and also essentially double the component of, uh, of water into the river. So that is a concern if we do have atmospheric rivers in June, just because they, they typically haven't happened. Uh, so it's not just the rain, but the potential of, of rain falling on a melting snowpack. Okay, so what do you forecast is happening over the next few weeks then? 
Well, still no signs of extended heat. So areas, uh, bigger river systems, the ones with higher elevation, have only just begun to start rising. So, of course, the, 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 the example in the province is the Fraser River. And that is one that is still at risk. Uh, the headwaters in the upper Fraser, North Thompson and Caribou Mountains were well above normal snowpacks on April 1st, long before this delay of snow melt occurred. Uh, so still no signs typically in order to get uh, the flooding for the interior in, in the spring. You do need the heat first and then the wild card is, is rain following the heat. So seeing a, a mini version of that happening right now in the north, uh, but still, again, no signs of heat. What that might mean is that the bigger systems might not be peaking until late June and, and possibly even into July or, or mid-July. So still a long way to go this season. Would there be concerns if that happened? Or is it, I mean, is it a good thing that we don't have the extended heat right now? Or is this kind of cool, slower snow melt better? It's hard to say until, of course, the season is over. Uh, it's been good in the sense that we haven't had flooding in April or May, any, any significant flooding. There was maybe some rain events in the, in the Peace region in May that caused some issues. Uh, what we would be most worried about is if an event like the heat dome happened essentially this week or next week while we still had lots of snow remaining, that could end up with uh, significant or potentially catastrophic flooding throughout the province. So, um, just the caveat, of course, there is that there is no forecast for the heat dome. But last year's heat dome, it, it certainly scared me as a, as a hydrologist because it appeared that the snowpack was, was out throughout the whole province. We'd already had multiple heat events starting in April. And when the heat wave did occur, the heat dome, uh, we were getting snow melt rates of 80 to 100 millimeters per day. Um, which is extremely high. Usually when it's just hot weather, it might be 40 millimeters of 40, 50 millimeters. So it was essentially double, maybe even triple the, the rates of snow melt. And that's in the extreme highest elevations, even up near, uh, near the glacial elevations throughout the province. So that's the number one big risk if there is significant heat. And even just that light warming last week really kicked the, uh, the snow melt process uh, into high gear throughout the province. But uh, still, it's probably for the best that it's staying cool. If we don't get any heat waves, that's going to be a positive. Also, another positive would be if we stayed relatively dry, but uh, not necessarily seeing that in the next 10 days or so. Oh boy, it sure doesn't look like that. All right, we'll keep our fingers crossed. So Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it's no secret that the restaurant and service industry is trying hard to close a labor gap. Thousands of jobs remain unfilled and restaurants are finding different ways to deal with that, whether it's, you know, cutting the hours that they're open to automating more of the food ordering and delivery process. It's an ongoing challenge. But what if it was easier for those restaurants to retain workers? What if workers were more motivated to stay or even take the job because the conditions of the job were better? Well, that's why this whole discussion about tipping is back in the news, because some restaurants are realizing that if they charge a little more for their food but do away with tipping, 
they might actually be able to retain workers, plus they don't have to worry about that whole tipping situation again. How's it going? Well, Devinder Chaudhry joins us now. He's the owner of Iana Restaurant in Ottawa, where they have taken this step. Devinder, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Thanks a lot for inviting me to your show. First off, tell me about the kind of food that you have. What kind of restaurant is Ayana? Simi, uh, at Ayana, we offer uh, a fine dining experience, and it's it's Canadian cuisine. Okay. It's, it's, uh, yes. so, so it's like a fine dining restaurant. Yes, that's right. Normally, people would expect to have to tip when they go to a restaurant like that, Devinder. So why did you decide to take that option away? Um, you know, salary structure offers our employees a steady and reliable source of income. And, and from the very inception, we decided to adopt uh, a salary-based compensation structure, uh, structure at IANA. Uh, it, it just made sense for us. I mean, uh, our team members are thorough professionals. And just by having a, a tipping uh, an hourly sort of a, an arrangement, it takes away from that sense of professionalism. Uh, at least that's, that's the impression I got very strongly uh, when I was interviewing our, uh, our team. Um, you know, in a salaried structure, the fact of the matter is that it, it normalizes and mainstreams uh, the restaurant workers themselves. So it's, it's not just a matter of, you know, I'm going to university and I'm going to work four hours in the evening at the front of the house and make some cash. Uh, I believe that this is working in restaurant industry is a career choice. It's not just a stopgap arrangement. And if we want to highlight that fact that it is a viable career choice, uh, you know, our, our workers should be paid a salary and, uh, you know, their, their financial well-being should not be dependent on the generosity of our patrons. It is, as an employer, I mean, it's my responsibility to pay them a fair and equitable wage. I'm sure a lot of people are very happy to hear this, but how did you compensate for that? Did you have to maybe raise some prices? Um, well, our prices are whatever our full cost per plus the targeted margin is, and our full cost is based on a salaried structure. So by doing this, you know, we were able to offer fair wages to the entire team, front and back of the house. And, and also, uh, it has enabled us to offer them uh, a very, uh, very generous uh, benefit package. We also offer retirement benefits. So we are, you know, it's as good as working in, in any professional uh, organization. And, and you know, uh, there, there's a lot of pride that comes with being treated uh, respectfully and, and with dignity. So Devinder, how has this gone over with um, the staff in terms of you being able to recruit workers? Has that changed people wanting to come and work there? That has been a challenge because most of the uh, employees, especially the service staff, they're used to having these cash tips. So at at 11 p.m. on a Friday and Saturday, they're extremely cash rich. Well, 11 a.m. next day might be a different story. But uh, that's the culture currently where uh, the service staff, they're used to taking these cash tips. They don't have to or they have a choice to report or not those report those uh, cash tips and their, as their earnings. So it's a bit of a challenge to help them understand why a salaried position is much better. 
Of course, we have to be competitive. If, let's say, a server is making $80,000 in cash tips or whatever that number is, then our salary should and, and the entire package should approximate that number. Otherwise, we will not be able to find talent. Uh, however, you know, it's, it's somewhat difficult to convince um, uh, the employees, but more and more uh, experienced employee, employees are actually seeing the benefit of being on a salaried structure. So, you know, there's stability. They can take that pay stub and go to a bank, apply for a car loan, a mortgage, if for whatever reason they're laid off, they're uh, retire, you know, their unemployment benefits are much higher because entire uh, their entire salary is reported rather than just a part. Right. So there's other benefits there that they maybe perhaps over time they will start to see. Yes, of course. And I've, our experience is that uh, experienced servers, experienced service staff is actually, is actually uh, acknowledging and understanding the benefits. It is the younger crowd that you know, university students who are who are perhaps not as serious about making a career in hospitality, uh, who are who somewhat struggle to accept this kind of a right. What about the customers then, Devinder? How are they taking this? Our customers really appreciate it. Uh, I mean, I I would say I received at least a couple of either emails or reviews or a phone call from our guests who, who really appreciate the model that we've, we've chosen. So initially, yes, because our, the prices that are listed on our menu are our full cost. So that's a bit of this is a sticker shock associated with it. But once it's explained that this price is, is everything and, and uh, you know, our, our service staff explains to them that we are not on a tipping model, everyone is salaried, uh, that that uh, initial shock goes away pretty fast, and guests actually appreciate it. I mean, at the end of the day, we are all operating under the same economic reality. So just because somebody is not accepting tips and the and the entire cost of operations is built in, it doesn't mean their price is going to be higher than uh, the the price that a guest pays under a tip. Have you heard from other restaurants, Devinder? Like, are other perhaps local restaurants thinking of going this route? There, there is interest, and I can speak for Ottawa. Uh, you know, there are several uh, other restaurants who are, you know, looking at this model. Uh, the reality has changed. Uh, a year ago, um, you know, a service staff was getting a minimum wage of twelve dollars twenty cents plus tips in, in Ontario. Today, that minimum wage has gone up to 15. And you know, as as the minimum wage increases, I think uh, I think that that gap narrows. So then, what is the salary structure like at IANA? What does a server make there? Um, I would hate to say that on radio, <laughs> 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 because I might have a few of my team members approach me. Like, uh, How about an people. average? So, would you say a living wage? Like, would you, it's more than minimum wage, obviously. So, uh, living wage in Ottawa, in Ottawa is eighteen dollars and sixty cents an hour, and our service staff makes anywhere from twenty-five to thirty-two dollars an hour. You know, Devinder, if word gets out, then I would imagine that it might be a little bit easier for you to attract some workers, though, right? Yes, that is so true. That is so true. And 
this is a very tough market, but uh, we have to we have to offer a career option over here. Only then our industry will be able to bring talent in. Otherwise, it'll it'll be a constant struggle. Well, I love hearing about it. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Simi. Have a wonderful day.